I'm Nikandru Yanachi, producer of We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. As you know, the National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Over the next three weeks, we're featuring some of the best programs held this fall at the Constitution Center across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. This week, in continuing celebration of the 225th anniversary of the ratification of the Bill of Rights, Jeff speaks with Akhil Amar, Yale Law professor and author of the new book, The Constitution Today, Timeless Lessons for the Issues of Our Era. Professor Amar was at the Constitution Center for our annual Bill of Rights Day Book Festival on December 15th. You can watch the other great panels on museum preservation, the Second Amendment, and the death penalty by going to constitutioncenter.org debate. Here's Jeff to get us started. Welcome home at the National Constitution Center. And why did Madison initially resist a, a Bill of Rights? And this is home. Uh, so thank you so much for, for, for um, having me back. Um, I um, uh, remember when this was just an idea, um, this amazing center. And now it has three dimensions. Um, it is a, a great space to study not just the original Constitution, but the amendments, because without the amendments, I'm not sure that we could all celebrate it today, black and white, male and female, Jew and Gentile, to the extent that we can today. Um, the framers, great though they were, um, who met, of course, just right across the, the, the mall here uh, at Independence Hall, great though they were, they were people of their era, um, and they weren't perfect. And one way of thinking about the amendments is a making of amends for some of their lapses and um, even um, sins. Uh, and that making of amends begins, that's what amend, at the, these amendments, with what we call the Bill of Rights, even though that phrase doesn't appear in the Constitution. It's maybe an element of America's unwritten constitution, if you will, that, that, that's what we, we call it. And it begins with a very interesting story of a pivot, a pivot um, by James Madison, who opposed the idea of a Bill of Rights at Philadelphia in the last um, uh, uh, week, really, of, uh, of their deliberations in September. Um, and I'll tell you why he opposed it, and he largely opposed a Bill of Rights, although less emphatically, during the ratification process. And yet he's the person who really spearheaded this, um, this, this, these first set of amendments, what we call the Bill of Rights, in the first Congress. And without his really relentless championing of this idea that he originally rejected, and then uh, privately at Philadelphia, and then publicly poo-pooed, um, and then later, you see he's championing it. Without that pivot on his part, I'm not sure there would be um, a Bill of Rights, and I don't think it would look quite like it does. So first, why did he oppose it at Philadelphia? Now, I'll tell you my actual view of, 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 of why, because sometimes people aren't even fully conscious of their own motivations. Human beings are, are complex. My own reading, because he comes up with all sorts of principled arguments, the problem is the principal arguments don't really make sense. They don't add up and they contradict each other. I don't own a dog, it didn't bite you, and you kicked it first. That's the, that's the triple dog bite defense. So, um, you know, a, a bill of rights is a bad thing, it's an unnecessary thing. Oh, and by the way, we already have one. That's actually what Madison and others say. You know, Bill of Rights is a bad and dangerous thing. Oh, and there already is an effective Bill of Rights in Article 1, Section 9, and Article 1, Section 10. Well, you could believe one of those, but when you say all three, so what's up? My candid view is that when late in Philadelphia, George Mason, who had really been um, the originator of 
America's first Bill of Rights, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which took shape even before the Declaration of Independence in June of 1776. George Mason was the father of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, a state constitutional um, declaration. And he's at Philadelphia. And you will remember that he's one of three people who stays to the end and doesn't sign the thing. So in Signers Hall, right across here, you'll see him and Edmund Randolph and Elbridge Gerry standing apart. But in mid-September, uh, early September, he proposes a Bill of Rights. And, and, uh, and he's going to want to compose it to be the main um, drafter, as he was in Virginia. And, and without a lot of deliberation, frankly, he gets just voted down. Here's, in my view, what's going on. They're hot. They're homesick. They're tired. They just want to go home. And so they're actually not thinking it through. And George Mason says, well, we could do it in a matter of hours. And here's what they're thinking. And it's not on the page. This is my interpolation. Yes, he says it's you know, going to take just you know, a day or something. But this is going to be another two weeks. He's a pain in the butt. You know, and, the, and, and we want to go home. Now, why do I say it that way? Because you see, if they had really good reasons for re resisting this, then the decision eventually to adopt a Bill of Rights was a mistake. So you know, Madison can't be really both right at Philadelphia and then right two years later when he pushes the thing forward. Is, you know, it's like you know, on the witness stand. Well, are you lying now or are you lying, were you lying then? Because you're telling a different story. And I want to tell the story which Madison actually moves in the correct direction. His original reasons for resisting weren't so good. They weren't so well thought through. And um, they don't make sense analytically. But it, what does make sense is the following. And this is now a big point about the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't come from 39 people meeting at Philadelphia. It's not just a small group of people meeting secretly. The Constitution comes from we, the people of the United States. The real drama is the ratification process, a year-long process in which up and down a continent, ordinary people are being invited to debate and then ultimately to vote on whether they're going to vote yes, we want this document, or no, we reject it. That's the drama, a whole continent voting on a constitution. And the first thing that these, or when, it, when it leaves the small, closed, secret room in Philadelphia, almost the first thing that people say is, dudes, where are the rights? You forgot the rights. And why would they say that? Because this constitution isn't the first that America has adopted. We've had state constitutions, beginning with the Virginia Constitution, and it had a Declaration of Rights, and the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 had a Declaration of Rights, and the New Hampshire Constitution of 1784 had a, a Declaration of Rights, and so did others. So the first thing ordinary people say is, you forgot the rights. And the framers are kind of defensive about this because they did forget it. But, but do you want to admit that? So they actually resist, and they try to, to make some arguments. We, it's unnecessary. It's dangerous. Oh, no, by the way, we already have them. Doesn't make sense, these arguments. And eventually, they pivot. And Madison is a huge part of that pivot, and it's a two-part pivot. First. During the ratification process, a bunch of federals say, you know what, if you guys really want a Bill of Rights, fine. Let's adopt the Constitution, and then we can add a Bill of Rights. Because one of the great things about the Constitution is it's amendable. It's easier to amend than the Articles of Confederation. Articles of Confederation, in theory, can't be changed unless 13 state legislatures say yes. And you're never going to get 13 to say yes, because Rhode Island is going to say no, or New York. There's always, there's always one. You know, and you know that just from life. There's always one. And, um, um, and so, so if we stick with the, if you vote this thing down, we're stuck. And we're never going to be able to move forward. If you vote yes on this, then we can amend it through Article 5. We only need 2 thirds of the House, 2 thirds of the Senate, 3 quarters of the state legislatures. And then we can actually make improvements. So a bunch of Federalists say, if you guys vote yes, we promise that we'll work with you to think about maybe revising it. Madison doesn't quite go that far, but he's, he's beginning to move in that direction. Then the second part of the pivot, because Madison isn't done. Now, the Constitution's been ratified. Um, it's now, remember, it's proposed in September of 1787. Now it's basically a year later, September 1788. 11 states have said yes. North Carolina and Rhode Island haven't yet. So when George Washington is going to take office as the first president of the United States, there are only 11 states in the new union. 
But Madison isn't done. He's, the Constitution's been ratified, but we don't have North Carolina and Rhode Island back in the Union. We had a whole bunch of American patriots who voted against the Constitution. It was a very closely contested um, ratification in Massachusetts, in Virginia, in New York, in New Hampshire. Very closely contested. And again, two states have voted it down, um, uh, North Carolina and, and, and Rhode Island. And Madison isn't done. He's got to make the system work. Now, this, it's been ratified on paper. How is he going to make it work? He's got to get himself elected to Congress so that he can actually begin to implement this thing. Now, he has to win the congressional election. And in that congressional election, he basically has to promise his constituents that he will support a Bill of Rights. Because if he doesn't, pivot and, and basically say, you know, um, I was originally skeptical about this thing, but I'm now persuaded it's a good idea. He's not going to get elected to Congress. He gets elected to Congress on a platform that he will push a Bill of Rights. He defeats James Monroe, who's running against him. So now, in order to you know, be an honest person, he's got to, to you know, uh, carry out his, his promise. And in order to get all these people of good faith who voted against the Constitution, but they're Americans too, and you need to bring them on board. So, and if they say they want a Bill of Rights, let's get them to buy into the project, as long as it's not a bad idea. If, even if it's just like you know, a neutral idea, this will give them a sense of co-authorship and co-ownership in the project to bring them on board, because they weren't at Philadelphia. And we need to bring North Carolina and Rhode Island back in the Union. And maybe their reasons for voting the Constitution down are stupid, fine. But we need to give them political cover so that they can reverse themselves. We need to actually be magnanimous in victory so that, and if we give them a Bill of Rights, then they can say, ah, well now I can change my mind. Because you see, they've lost, they, they're feeling bitter about the thing. How do we bring them back on board? So, so um, Madison, for several reasons, pushes this Bill of Rights, because he made a campaign promise to do it, and he has to face the voters very soon. Um, and because he wants to get all these people in the states that are already in the union onto the team, onto team constitution, and because he wants to get North Carolina and Rhode Island um, in, into, um, uh, back into a, a reunion um, with, with the other states. So, so, um, and, and why didn't they do it at Philadelphia? Because they were stupid, they were tired. This happens to small groups of elites, even like brilliant people. You know, Ben Franklin, George Washington, but a small group of people is not as wise as the American people generally. That's what you believe if you're a small D Democrat. I'm a small D Democrat. I think there's wisdom in the broader polity. And so the people in the ratification process were wiser than the 39 folks at Philadelphia who basically were, were hot and tired. Fascinating. So that's, the, I hear you saying not stupid, but hot and tired. They had enough. Okay, bravo for that. And we now, now I now understand that Madison's two reasons, as Akil said, it's unnecessary or it's dangerous, unnecessary because the Constitution itself is a Bill of Rights, dangerous because people might assume if the right isn't written down, it's not protected, was a smokescreen to the fact they wanted to get out of town. Okay, so Madison pivots. Because if those were really good arguments, then it was a mistake to have a Bill of Rights. Yes. Uh, and, and since you mentioned, one of the reasons is, you know, it's dangerous because if you, if you itemize rights A, B, C, and D, maybe you're implying that those are the only rights and you don't have rights to E, F, and G, you know, because you don't say you have a right to raise your kids, you have a right to wear a hat, to play, uh, to play the fiddle, to have a pet dog. They're, you know, the number of rights that Americans really have are infinite and we can only specify so much. And if we specify so much, gee, that's actually going to be dangerous because we're implying that these other rights don't exist. That's not a great argument because states already have bills of rights. Um, and it's not a great argument because we eventually adopt. But Madison now needs to, for himself, you know, give cover to the Federalists. So he drafts a Ninth Amendment that actually um, says the enumeration of certain rights in the Bill of Rights doesn't um, mean that they're not others. And, and so just as he's giving political cover to the critics of the Constitution and now come on board, he has to give a little political cover to people like himself who oppose this. And, and so it really is someone who actually is, in a very sophisticated way, trying to get everyone to work together. Okay, so Which is maybe a lesson for us all today, you know, <laughs> about, because we're a deeply divided country right now. We are, but we're united by this beautiful Bill of Rights, and we're going to talk about 
how Madison chose the rights that he did. So one or two of you may have seen me this morning plug the thrilling interactive Constitution, which you can get in the App Store and at constitutioncenter.org. And one thing that this beautiful transformative education platform does was inspired by my studying with Akhil in law school long ago. Because I asked Akhil, how did Madison pick the rights that he did? And he said, go to the state constitutions and study what rights they had, because Madison cut and pasted among them. And this was a long time ago, in, in 1990 or so, and there was a book, a two-volume set by Schwartz, and you had to read the book. So I thought, and my colleagues here at the Constitution Center thought, let's put them online. And you can now click on any part of the Bill of Rights and see all of those antecedents in the revolutionary era so that you can see the amendments that Madison proposed that were not adopted. And I want to start with those, Akhil, because they're so important. There were at least uh, five of them, the two that ended up being uh, part of the original 12, which we talked about this morning. Uh, the first, the original First Amendment, which says one representative in Congress for every 30,000 inhabitants, that one doesn't pass. The one that says that Congress can't raise its salary without an intervening election becomes the 27th Amendment in 1992. But there's an amendment in there that Madison thinks is the most important in the bunch, mm -hmm. and that would have prohibited states as well as the federal government from infringing the fundamental rights of conscience, a trial by jury, and freedom of the press. And you can mm -hmm. find that here at the Interactive Constitution. Why did Madison consider that the most important in the bunch? And tell us about the other amendments that he proposed that were not ratified. Madison believes that actually the greatest threats to liberty, especially minority liberty, liberty of the, the outsider, the dissenter, the greatest threats are actually posed perhaps by the most democratic governments closest to the citizenry, the state governments, because in, a, in, in any individual state, there might be, for example, one religious group that has a clear majority, and it's going to be tempted to um, uh, tyrannize over the minority religious group. Um, and his vision of rights was very much influenced, especially by religion. But now in the United States as a whole, since there's so many, I have to speak very carefully here because we're on C-SPAN, so many different sects, S-E-C-T-S, <laughs> that's a plural. You know, we're having a program um, next season on sex and the Constitution, but that's the other version. Yes, okay, so not S-E-X, but so many different um, religious um, groups, Baptists and Quakers and Congregationalists and Anglicans, um, uh, and um, uh, so in any given um, locality, one of these groups might be dominant and tempted to tyrannize over the others. But in America at, uh, as a whole, no one given religious denomination was going to have that kind of majoritarian power. Sort of every denomination in a nation as a whole was a minority of sorts. So Madison thought, actually, um, uh, rights might be more secure against the federal government, the larger government, um, at, than against uh, individual states. The, the canonical statement of that view is Madison's Federalist 10. Now, if you believe that, if you believe that states actually are maybe a greater threat to liberty than the federal government, even though the federal government is, is more aloof and there are fewer federal representatives and, and you don't, you're less likely to know them personally. So conventional theory is democracies are rights protective by their very nature and state governments are closer to the citizens. They're more democratic. They're more like you. You're more likely to know your state representative who comes from your neighborhood and comes back every weekend or something. That was the conventional view. Madison thought, no, actually, this more distant, aloof, elitist federal government will actually be better at protecting minority rights. If you think that, then you think, as a, OK, well, it's important to have some rights against the federal government because the skeptics of the Constitution want that. And we need to bring Rhode Island and North Carolina on board. And the people are accustomed to that because they've seen state declarations of rights. So they think that a proper government should have them. But as important as all that is, I, James Madison, believe it's even more important to have um, rights against state government, a, a statement that no state shall abridge you know, the following fundamental rights. And he slips that in. Most of the other things that become provisions of the Bill of Rights, most of them 
um, were proposed in state ratifying conventions in Massachusetts, in New Hampshire, um, in New York, in Virginia especially. So m much of what he does is to take all these state ratification proposals, which are basically yes, but. Yes, we ratify, but here are some um, amendments that we're proposing. He culls through that list. He's a compiler. You know, he, he pulls all the lists together. He sort of goes through them. He sees which ones are especially prominent in the state constitutions. And he basically just winnows that list using state constitutions and the ratification proposals as his um, first cut. But the thing that he, more than anyone else, adds himself when he puts himself into the picture is this Federalist 10-like idea that we're going to have, um, we're going to have at least one amendment that provides um, for rights against state governments, and it passes the House of Representatives, but maybe you know, not surprisingly, it fails in the Senate, which remember is a body at that time that's elected by state legislatures, and this is an amendment that would limit state governments, state legislatures, so they say no, so it's not proposed, it doesn't get two-thirds in the Senate, and it's not gonna be until after the Civil War that we get a Madison-like amendment that basically says, no state shall. Remember how the First Amendment begins, Congress shall make no law of a certain sort, how the uh, Bill of Rights ends with um, the 10th Amendment affirming rights of, of states and localities. So the original Bill of Rights is limiting the federal government and only the federal government. Madison wants rights against states because he thinks states are more threatening to liberty. He doesn't get, you know, he, he fails in that, but he's eventually proved right because states do misbehave. Uh, and, and they misbehave so greatly that eventually there's a, a civil war precipitated by state misbehavior. And in the aftermath of that, um, another amendment is adopted, a making of amends that does actually uh, say in its second sentence, no state shall, and what it says is no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Now, what are those privileges and immunities? Things like conscience, free exercise of religion, um, freedom of expression, jury trial, et cetera, et cetera. Things in the Bill of Rights, fundamental rights, that now, henceforth, no state should abridge. And the, the prototype of that 14th Amendment is Madison's original amendment, which, interestingly enough, was 14th on the list of amendments that passed the first House huh. of Representatives. Wow. So you heard what Akil just said, that the original Bill of Rights only binds Congress, but Madison thought there are certain rights that are so important, they come from God or nature and not government, states should be prohibited from bridging those as well. Or even custom. I'm, I'm not sure juries come from God or nature. They, you know, they're they're man-made and, 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 and all sorts of rules about trials, about, you know, I'm not sure lawyers come from God, uh, maybe, you know, but the right of counsel is a really important one. So customary as well as natural rights. So two natural rights, speech and conscience, and one customary one. But Madison clearly believes in natural rights because two of the other amendments that he proposed but were not adopted. Talk about natural rights. The first one sounds like a paraphrase of Jefferson's second sentence in the Declaration, basically saying people are born in a state of nature with certain unalienable rights, and when they move from the state of nature to civil society, they retain the alienable natural rights in order to secure the greater security and safety of the rights they've retained. And then another amendment kind of says the legislature can't be the executive, and the executive can't be the legislature, and, the, and so forth, the separation of powers amendment. Tell us about Madison and the framers' vision of natural rights, and if they knew what these rights were and why they came from, um, is that one reason that they thought a Bill of Rights was extra secure, but not, nece not necessary? Well, I'm laughing or smiling because a lot of what I know about natural rights I actually learned from one of my great teachers. Um, of constitutional law, whose name is Jeff Rosen, who was my student, um, and who wrote a really great paper that he published as a note in the Yale Law Journal um, that reflected in part on 
um, a theory of natural and inalienable rights. And, and the first of these, he, he, he studied, and where would you study these? You'd study the state constitutional backdrop and antecedents of the Federal Bill of Rights. But he studies a man named Theophilus Parsons in Massachusetts and, and other folks. But, but if you are a natural rights theorist and you think that you know, uh, uh, rights come um, from the creator and the, the Declaration of Independence is a, is a statement of this, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, one, um, and maybe not property, maybe property is created by man and, and law and custom, maybe not, there, there are debates about that, but the, maybe the, the first thing um, and it's really, it is given by the creator, and it's, not, and it's unalienable because it's not just a right, it's, it's a duty. It's not, you can't give it up even if you want to. What does unalienable mean? You can't alienate, you can't trade it away, you can't sell it, you can't give it away even if you want. Um, and, and the greatest thesis is, is conscience, and, and God, on this view, has endowed humanity, man meaning all humans, um, with conscience, and, and it's, um, and, and you can't give that up even if you wanted because you can't turn yourself into an animal. What it means to be a human being is actually to, to be able to think for yourself, to try to figure out what is right and what is wrong, and you can't let, and other people can't tell you that. You have to figure that out for yourself. Other people can't eat for you. You know, other people can't sleep for you. Other people can't defecate for you. There are certain things that you, you know, can only do for yourself. They're unalienable. And one of them is this idea of thinking for yourself and trying to figure out um, in this world, you know, what end is up, what is right and what is wrong. There's these rights of, of conscience. They're duties that you owe your creator, actually. They're not just sort of rights. Many people in, on, on this view believe that life was such a thing, too. Life was actually a gift from God, and you couldn't relinquish it even if you wanted. Therefore, you have no right to suicide on a certain view. Life is unalienable because it's a gift from God that you're not actually at liberty to, to spurn. Um, and, and so your life is unalienable. Um, it's not, because it's not quite yours. It's, it's um, uh, fully, um, it's also, um, and, and conscience is the greatest of these. And, and rights of expression ultimately on this view grow out ultimately of freedom of thought, which is I think the deepest um, of, the, of the natural and inalienable rights on one view of the matter. There are many views out there, but I've tried to, um, and, and my teacher will, who's here now will tell me how much I've got right and wrong, but, um, but. Um, no, that's beautiful, and I want to ask whether the rights of conscience, as you put them, are the right to believe or not to believe in God. It really is a duty of being a reasoning human being. And Jefferson believes that we all have certain faculties, ranging from passions at the bottom to reason at the top, and we have a duty to develop our faculties, as both Jefferson said and then Brandeis quoted him in the to, Whitney. To, to pursue to, happiness. To pursue happiness. And, and, develop. and, and how can, um, you know, belief, can, can that be forced or mandated? You, 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 know, you, you could try to show something, and you could try to stimulate belief, but, but how can you mandate? Um, belief, um, uh, internal conviction. I'm not sure on this view that such a thing could could happen. And 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 they would have said it's totalitarian to try to demand other people believe certain things. Um, now you can try, again try to persuade them through appeals to to, to reason or, and in other traditions to revelation. So these are men, and they're men of the Enlightenment. They have a tremendous faith in reason, deliberation. What would they make, uh, I just read that the Oxford English Dictionary calls the word of the year in 2016 uh, post-truth. And what would they make of a post-truth society where citizens don't see, seem able, able to agree about facts? Yeah, um, I think they would be deeply disheartened by that. I'm an enlightenment, I'm a child of the enlightenment. So, um, uh, um, uh, what would they tell us we should do to overcome this post-truth society and try to achieve some sort of common reason? Um, well, one thing, you know, it's always difficult to try to, to um, uh, imagine what they would tell us, but, 
And, if you're, and historians don't like playing the game. You know, well, what would Thomas Jefferson think? Well, Thomas Jefferson would, you know, would be dead. You know, he, so, so, um, so they will tell you what he did think, and they are hesitant. But law professors are different, because every day we have to decide. And it's not that we're bad historians. It's that we're playing a different game. We're trying to do a different thing. We are actually trying to apply principles that were laid down many years ago to figure out whether plaintiff or defendant wins in the current case. So actually, we do think about that a lot. And I would say one thing um, that they would encourage is that we have to actually talk across the divide and, and talk to people um, who don't live necessarily in our neighborhood or worship in our church. Um, they're imagining a Congress in which people from different parts of the country that aren't communicating with each other will come together and the people in Congress will exchange information and ideas and perspectives and every one of them is expected to perhaps be persuaded or to make certain adjustments, certain compromises that the folks back home might not love, but the folks back home don't know about folks in other homes and other d districts that see the world very differently. And the point is that we're supposed to actually try to talk to each other, and we do that um, in newspapers, but also in, in Congress. And they think that when someone makes an argument, you're supposed to make a counter-argument. Um, and the Federalists actually do very much try to respond to the Anti-Federalists. And Madison, in the end, comes to believe that the arguments he made against the Bill of Rights actually weren't quite so good. Um, and there was an answer to rights are dangerous. The answer is add a Ninth Amendment, so they won't be. He comes to think that he had undervalued certain reasons for a Bill of Rights, like that they could be judicially enforceable, which is something that Jefferson reminds him of in correspondence. So he is in exchange with other people who have different views than he does, and he actually learns from them. the Baptists in his district say, we trust you, we like you, you've been for religious freedom for a long time, from the 1780s, mid-1780s, the Virginia Bill of Religious Freedom. We actually trust you, we know you actually believe in, in religious liberty and equality, but we think you're actually betraying that when you seem to be opposed to a Bill of Rights. And he listens to them, and he better, because if he doesn't, he's not going to get elected. And he says, ah, I hear you, and actually, um, you have a point. Um, and so I think they would say we do have to, um, uh, the Constitution was very divisive. People um, uh, um, got very um, agitated on each side, and yet, and yet, and, and, and it was adopted by a vote of 30 to 27 in New York. Uh, and just so we're clear, the, um, 30 is more than 27, and so the 31, you know, because back then, like if you got more votes, that was actually, you see. Um, Appeal <laughs> on a nonpartisan basis. No, 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 the, the center has to be nonpartisan. I don't always have to be nonpartisan. You just have to bring in someone else. I'm, I'm being playful here, um, but the 27, you know, we're not very happy at having lost. A lot of raw feelings, and here's what's really impressive. America is actually divided pretty deeply between Federalist and Anti-Federalist. And one of the most important facts of the Bill of Rights is often not understood because we focus on what it says rather than what it does. What it does is it brings America together. It's something that the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists can both accept. It's so, sort of a consensus compromise position. It broadens the coalition um, for the Constitution, which was originally a pretty narrow and brittle one. In the long run, it is hard to govern a society 51-49, and maybe even harder to govern a society 49-51. I need to take one more beat on the nonpartisan historical point because it's so important. At the end of his life, Madison is wondering whether public reason is possible. And he's interested in new, tech, new media technologies that might unite farmers in the south with merchant interest in the north. But he is not completely confident that citizens can come together, hear disparate points of views, and reason together. What did he think was necessary to achieve that public reason? Um. Well, I'll say one thing. I hope I've been pretty generous to Madison. He was a very great man. He was a thinker and a doer. And there are not so many 
actually. Uh, 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 um, we've got pointy heads in the academy, but we don't, you know, yours truly, and we don't actually do very much. And then we've got folks out there in the world, um, in government, doing things, but often they don't think very much. Um, and I'm worried about some of them. Um, who seem to be doers more than thinkers. Um, and there are pathologies of people who are thinkers and not doers, uh, too many, you know, the, the, the ivory tower academicians. So to his credit, Madison's a thinker and a doer, and he reflects on this, and he is thinking about um, uh, 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 the media, um, but here are now two things that I do want to tell you about Madison, since we are celebrating one of his greatest achievements, getting the Bill of Rights through 225th anniversary. One, he is a partisan. Okay, so yes, on this nonpartisan basis, you can say all of that, but you've been taught that Madison is opposed to party and faction, and you've all read or heard about the Federalist Ten. Raise your hands if you've heard about. Okay. The, the oldest political party in America, maybe the world, in continuous existence is what we call the Democratic Party. And it is founded by James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. And it will become the party of Jackson and, and, uh, and, um, uh, uh, and, and later the party of, of Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt and, and Jack Kennedy and Barack Obama. Okay? It's founded by James Madison within a decade of adopting the Constitution when he's railing against party and faction. Okay? So he's, you know who he is? Um, and I actually blurb a, um, a biography of Madison, a fine one, by Rick Brookheiser, who happens to be a conservative and, um, um, you know, it's nonpartisan basis, a very great man. He writes a biography of Madison, and I'm a blurber. Um, and Joe Ellis, who is an historian, is a blurber, and Joe Ellis says, Madison's an historian, and I, Joe Ellis, is a historian. And I'm a constitutional person. I said, Madison is a constitutional guy. I'm a constitutional guy. Rick Brookheiser is a journalist, and Madison actually was a political journalist um, of, of sorts. But the other blurber was Karl Rove. And Karl Rove says, I'm a political operative, and so was Madison. James Madison is Karl Rove avant la lettre. He is a total political operative. The only difference is he steps out from behind the, uh, the, the stage and onto the stage when Jefferson leaves and he becomes president. So he, but, but he's a political operative. He's, you know, Reince Priebus. Okay? That's who he is. So one, he is a partisan, and that's not the picture of Madison that you thought. So he does try to unite Federalists and Anti-Federalists early on, but then he actually founds a political party. And here's the second thing, because we just have to say it. His political party is based on slavery. The Democrat Party is a pro-slavery party, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And the party of Jefferson and Madison is going to become the party of Jackson and um, uh, Andrew Jackson become the party of Roger Tawney and the party of Dred Scott, and it will be the party that almost destroys America. And so I need to tell you all that because we can take Madison and all his academic and theoretical pretensions very seriously, and I do, but I also want you to see that he fooled himself and other people because he was unfortunately, more in the grip of slavery, which is not about reason and enlightenment and natural rights and all the rest. It's a violation of every fundamental principle of right and wrong and decency. And he knows it. So he, he doesn't actually, the South Carolinians make, you know, they say slavery's a good thing. Jefferson and Madison know it's wrong and they don't free their slaves. So, so that needs to be said as well as we celebrate, because remember how I began, said amendments are making of amends for some of the lapses and the sins. The Bill of Rights begins that project, but it doesn't end it. Most important of all on this view, and I'm looking at my friend Tom Donnelly here, who's at the National Constitution Center and is involved in the second founding project, which is a huge um, um, project here at the National Constitution Center. The most important thing that you need to understand is that, um, and it's ironic and um, uh, apt at the same time, that the amendment that eventually fulfills Madison's vision, the 14th Amendment, the amendment that says no state shall, is going to be an amendment that is proposed by the anti-Jefferson um, party, Lincoln's party, the Republican party, and they're going to get into the Constitution an amendment that says no state shall, just barring from Madison's words, no state shall violate fundamental rights like 
conscience and, and thought and expression uh, and jury trial and right of counsel and, and the rest. And, and they're doing that. Um, and, and now these rights aren't just going to be for white folks, are not just going to be you know, for, they're going to be just for free people because all are free. Because before the 14th is this 13th Amendment putting an end to slavery. So now Madison's vision, so it's ironic and apt at the same time, because at his best he understood these things, but at his worst he betrayed these things. Um, but now the 14th Amendment codifying Madison's vision, but in a way that benefits not merely his nieces and, and nephews, um, but also the, um, um, the nieces and nephews and, and children and grandchildren of his slaves. And that's, you know, um, and, and we're not done with the 14th Amendment because we're going to, you know, what about women and, and, and what about poll tax disenfranchisement? And even today, you see, we're not done. The amendment project is a project of making amends for their lapses and sins, because as great as they were, the, you know, those, those folks, um, those 39 people um, who composed, who signed the thing across the way here, they were not perfect. Okay, so uh, we need to ask a basic question uh, here at the 25th anniversary. How did uh, Congress choose the 12 rights that they did, and what are the basic things that you want our audience to know about what the Bill of Rights protects? The most basic thing, and I've already given you some hints about it, um, uh, uh, we'll just play a game. And some of you have played this game with me before, so if you have, don't spoil it for the others, because you will know the answer to this. But I'd like folks in the audience just to shout out the names of the famous when I say Bill of Rights, Bill of Rights cases in American history that pop into your head, whether you agree with the outcomes or not, the big famous Bill of Rights cases are, just shout out their names. Dred Scott, Dred, Dred Scott Gideon, Brown, Brown uh, Roe v. Wade, I heard, Marbury versus Madison, Griswold v. Connecticut, Brown v. Board of Education, New York Times v. Sullivan, Citizens United, Zenger. Now, um, it's a I can't fool um, this crowd. It's a very sophisticated crowd. And that said, half of the cases that you shouted out are not Bill of Rights cases. So first, Zenger is before the Constitution. Marbury versus Madison is about original versus appellate jurisdiction, and who cares? It's not any great principle of liberty. Um, Dred Scott is about the fundamental right to have slaves or something. But yes, that actually could count as a, a Bill of Rights idea. But here were landmark cases that you tossed out. And strictly speaking, they're not Bill of Rights cases. And I'll add a few more. Gideon versus Wainwright. Um, Griswold versus Connecticut. New York Times versus Sullivan, Brown versus Board of Education, Roe v. Wade, Lawrence v. Texas, um, Miranda v. Arizona. None of those is a Bill of Rights case. Tinker versus Des Moines. Why not? Because the Bill of Rights originally applied only against the federal government. Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. And the Tenth Amendment is about um, uh, states. Um, rights. And in between, there are celebrations of local juries and local militias. The original Bill of Rights was an anti-federalist, Tea Party, localist suspicion of the central government. And that's important. But that's not our Bill of Rights today, because you believe, with Madison, that some of your most fundamental rights need to be protected against states and localities. Brown versus Topeka, Board of Education of Kansas. Gideon versus Wainwright is Florida. Um, Roe versus Wade, is, whether you agree with it or not, is Texas. Lawrence versus Texas. New York Times versus Sullivan was an effort by Alabama to shut down free speech. Um, uh, so um, 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 Miranda v. Arizona, again, um, 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 uh, um, uh, Griswold versus Connecticut. Most of the cases that ordinary people think of as Bill of Rights cases aren't Bill of Rights cases, because the amendments are only about limiting, the original Bill of Rights limiting the federal government. So what kind of cases are Gideon versus Wainwright, 
and Lawrence versus Texas and Brown versus Board of Education and New York Times versus Sullivan if they're not Bill of Rights cases. You now know enough to know the answer. What cases are they? There are 14th Amendment cases. No state or localities, which are you know, part of states, shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge these fundamental rights. That's the second founding, a second Bill of Rights, the one that actually is more intuitive for most Americans today because states misbehaved because Madison lost when he tried to get that for original 14th Amendment passed, saying no state shall violate fundamental rights. But the Senate didn't go along, so he, he lost that fight. And that, but he wins in the end thanks to the 14th Amendment. And you know, it's utterly apt that we give Madison the credit for the final 14th Amendment, but it's also a little bit ironic because all of this is precipitated, this 14th Amendment, by the slaveocracy's um, uh, abuse of power. And alas, Madison and Jefferson were charter members of that slaveocracy. They founded a political party ba whose base was basically a southern base that benefited hugely in the Electoral College and elsewhere from the presence of, of slavery. Because of the three-fifths clause, Jefferson and Madison and their party is going to get extra electoral votes every election because the southern states that are voting for them are getting extra seats in the House of Representatives and therefore also in the Electoral College because of the existence of slavery, because of the so-called three-fifths clause. So it's both you know, ironic and apt that our Bill of Rights does descend from Madison, but through the 14th Amendment, through Lincoln. And, and so as we celebrate today Madison's achievement, I think we also have to bow our heads in thanks to Abraham Lincoln and his generation, which is what the National Constitution Center calls the second founding project. And there's no place in America that I think has focused more on the significance of that than this place here, uh, led by Jeff and, and, and Tom Donnelly, the Constitution Accountability Center, which is this great organization in Washington, DC, founded by the late Doug Kendall, and now headed up by Elizabeth Wydra, are also huge partners in this second founding project. It is a very exciting project. We just had the most wonderful event on the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment in the archives in DC just a few weeks ago, and you can watch it on video. So just to connect the, the dots and the math, the four score and seven years and blah, 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 you know, working backwards, the 14th Amendment is proposed basically, in effect, on, in, during the 75th anniversary mm. of the ratification of the, the, the Bill of Rights, which is why this year is you know, really 150 for the, the second founding and 225 for the Bill of Rights. Wow. Um, do you, you've argued so powerfully what, that the original Bill of Rights designed for the people was really focused on citizens. What were these basic rights of citizens that the framers thought were necessary to include in the original Bill of Rights? Well, you know, the, um, we, um, you know, when we say, well, the First Amendment was first because it's the most important, that's kind of yes and no. Um, it is the most important. And for the framers of the 14th Amendment, that First Amendment was first. But remember that when Madison's proposing his amendments, what we call the First Amendment was actually third on the list. And it only became first because the first two items on the list actually weren't ratified by enough states at, at the time. Can I just jump um, in and ask you, why weren't those two amendments ratified? Um, the original First Amendment was about congressional size. And almost every state that ratifies the rest ratifies it. The only real difference is Delaware. And Delaware doesn't want a big House of Representatives. It wants as small as possible. It would love it if the House of Representatives were cons consisted of 13 people, one for every state, smaller than the Senate, which constitutionally you could have. Um, um, one for each state. Each state has to get at least one. But if that happened, Delaware would have equality, you see, in both houses, which is what the Delaware folks wanted at Philadelphia. So Delaware is really the only state that ratifies what we call the Bill of Rights and not the original First Amendment. And that's because it doesn't want a big House of Representatives. Um, so, um, and the original uh, Second Amendment that says Congress can't raise its salary, why didn't that go through? Um, well, it eventually does, and I don't quite know exactly why it didn't generate enough um, interest early on. So you, you've got me stumped on, on, on that one. I've never been able to, to fully figure 
um, uh, 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 that one out. But um, it is, though, poetic that the amendment that ends up being ratified as the First Amendment celebrates speech and press. It's poetic and apt because from a, a structural point of view, speech and press, press and conscience are really kind of prior to everything else. You really can't have a democratic society unless people are free to think for themselves um, and, um, and, and speak for themselves, both politically and religiously. It's really impossible to imagine a genuinely democratic project. So I would say, put differently, even if we didn't have the First Amendment, I would have thought that those are basic presuppositions of the system as a whole. So it is apt that, you know, in some sort of deep way, poetic, you know, even though a coincidence, that it ends up being the First Amendment. So when you say, you know, something like, well, the First Amendment's there first because they thought it was most important, it's like someone who says, well, if English was good, I think it was Ma Ferguson, um, um, you know, if English was good enough for Jesus Christ, it's good enough for me, you know, and you laugh a little bit, but, you know, uh, um, there, there's something there too, I suppose. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you at the end, so you can start thinking about it, about why our audience should care about the Bill of Rights and why it's been important. But first, we have a couple of questions from our superb audience. Uh, while initially opposing a Bill of Rights, some of the framers expressed concern that in enumerating rights, some would inevitably be left out, and thus the rights of the people would be rendered incomplete. Do you believe there are rights that should have been included in the Constitution but were not, and even to this day have not been added? Well, that's where the Ninth Amendment comes in. It says, suppose we did leave some stuff out. The fact that an, a right isn't mentioned doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I'll give you some, but now the question is, well, how do we find these unlisted rights? And in a, a, a book that I haven't plugged in the last 30 seconds, um, a book called America's Unwritten Constitution, I try to give you, the reader, some tools and techniques. Because Jeff is right. I really believe in method. I think the constitutional law has rules. It's, it's, uh, it's, and when I call it a game, I don't mean to trivialize it. I mean that, that it has rules, um, just like baseball does, um, uh, or tennis. Um, so if um, a right isn't enumerated, but it's maybe implicit in the structure of the Constitution as a whole, um, you should um, uh, 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 protect it. Um, so, um, uh, and if it's um, uh, uh, a, a, a right, and I'll give you an example of each of these, if it's a right that we have by custom and tradition, maybe that's um, a basis for judges to say this right um, um, it, it, it exists. Um, and this is not because judges personally like it or don't like it. They're actually trying to see what are the privileges and immunities of citizens? What do citizens understand their own rights to be as a matter of lived practice? What, if we're talking about rights of the people, what do the people understand their own um, rights to be? So um, suppose we didn't have a First Amendment at all. Wouldn't you think that a right to speak out politically was just implicit in having free and fair elections? I would. So there is an example of a right that, that exists even before it's, it's textualized, um, uh, uh, for example. Um, how about a right, for example, um, to uh, present evidence on your own behalf if you're a criminal defendant? doesn't say that in so many words. It says you have a right to confront witnesses against you um, and compel the production of witnesses in your favor. But what about a right to introduce physical evidence that, that shows that actually you didn't do it? Well, it doesn't say that. But of course, that has to be a right because the whole structure of the rights that are mentioned are basically to give you a chance to show that you're innocent. Um, and so we've mentioned a few things. You have to have a right of counsel. We have to have speedy trial. We have to have public trial. You have to be able to confront witnesses against you. You have to be able to compel the production of witnesses in your favor. But that whole system, when you look at it, when you look at what are express rights, things are implied. Do you have a right to pen a private letter and to have that be free from government punishing you because of what you say in a letter. Well, strictly speaking, that's not speech. It's not oral. It's not a printing press. You could say, well, it's not press. It's not speech. 
doesn't exist. Or you could say, no, the whole point of the system of speech and press and the system more generally is Americans have to be free to communicate with each other. That's implicit in the whole system. So the Ninth Amendment is a very important reminder that not all the rights are textually specified. Then the, the game, and I don't mean to trivialize, it becomes, well, how do you find them if they're not? And I've given you at least two ways of finding it. One, looking at the, the things that are mentioned and interpolating, seeing kind of what's implied by the things that are actually expressed, um, implied rights. And a second, um, these that kind of go without saying, is looking at American, evolving American traditions and customs and, and cultures. No state other than, um, uh, um, uh, Connecticut, my home state, ever made it a crime for married couples to use contraception. Um, so Connecticut was basically un-American in doing so. And that's actually what Justice Harlan writes, actually, in a companion case to Griswold, saying there's an unenumerated right for a married couple to, to use contraception in the married bedroom, marital bedroom, because that's basically just a right of American tradition and culture. And, and I hadn't paid attention to that sentence, by the way, in Harlan, until I read a, a, a passage from one of my great teachers who pointed out that passage. His name is Jeff Rosen. Um, he pointed out that passage to me. And, 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 but now let me do it in one final way. The Fourth Amendment talks about the right of the people to be secure in their persons, papers, houses, and effects. The Third Amendment talks about a right to not have troops quartered in your houses. Well, what's up with that? Why are houses different than factories, or, or shops, um, um, or um, warehouses? Here's why. Because houses are, are places of privacy and domesticity. It's not about protecting the building as such. It's protecting about the home life within. Now, we call that home life privacy. And we can see it implicit in the Fourth Amendment and implicit in the Third Amendment, singling out houses, but also part of American um, um, history and culture. It doesn't say you have a right to, to have a pet dog or to play the fiddle, but I'll be damned if they t try to take my dog away from me, you know, because this is, this is America. You know, and by the way, what's true about dogs might be true about guns. And so even if there weren't a Second Amendment, you see, there might be an unenumerated right as a matter of American history and culture to have a handgun in your home for self-protection. I don't have one in mine. They scare me. But if you want to have one in yours, that's, I would say, not just, you know, forget the Second Amendment, forget the 14th Amendment. That's an unenumerated right. And I say that in, 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 in the, this, this, this new book. So those are examples of unenumerated rights. Ladies and gentlemen, you can tell that I know, like me, you would like to spend uh, an entire afternoon learning from Akhil. But Bill of Rights panels uh, have to end on time. So Akhil, the one paragraph version, it's on its 225th birthday. Why should Americans care about the Bill of Rights, and why is it important? Um, I, uh, um, we are deeply, we meet today um, in the shadow of an election that was divisive. Here's what we have in common. We have in common our Constitution. We have in common our Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment. Um, we have in common more than 225 years um, together as a people, north and south, blue and red, um, a liberal and conservative. Um, there are deep resources here. There are patriots um, on all sides of uh, the geographic um, and political spectrum. And if we're going to start to talk to each other and, and bind the wounds, I think there's no better place to begin than um, on this common of uh, our Constitution and our Bill of Rights. And I'll say uh, one other thing. These rights didn't come from judges. They didn't come just from elites. They came, they didn't come even from the smartest people, meet, uh, uh, elites meeting behind closed doors. They came bottom up organically from the American people when for the first time in the history of the world, an entire continent was asked whether we do or we don't, whether we agree to, to, to these set of rules or not. And the first thing we 
the people of the United States. And, and these are not my ancestors, but I identify with them. I'm allowed to join this project. The first thing we do is to say, yes, we will, but you forgot the rights, and that's very important. Um, and, and, um, and we are always one generation away from barbarism. All of this will, will just be washed away unless each and every generation reconnects with that and learns from it. You, you're not bound by it. You can amend it again. You can, you can do all sorts of things to your constitution. We, we could actually end the project, but we shouldn't. And we shouldn't do so lightly. And, and the only way to prevent us from unintentionally basically running the thing into a ditch is actually by studying it with real care. Um, you don't all have to be experts in neurosurgery or in plumbing um, 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 or, 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 or in carpentry. But you all are citizens. And therefore, you all, I think, really do. And I'm preaching to the choir, because you're here. But you all have to engage the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Ladies and gentlemen, happy Bill of Rights Day. And thank you, the great Akhil Amar. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and Kevin Kilborn and edited by Jason Gregory. It was produced by yours truly. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Please email us anytime at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Nikandro Yanachi.